0: Welcome to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast with your host, Dr. Yoni Rosenblatt. Are you facing challenges in activating your patient's quads post-knee surgery? Well, today we've got you covered as Dr. Race Hauser sheds light on the intricacies of arthrogenic muscle inhibition, providing comprehensive insights into sports rehab principles that can elevate your professional journey and boost your patient's recovery. Dr. Hauser, a seasoned physical therapist, orthopedic clinical specialist, And certified strength and conditioning specialist delves into the nuances of optimizing quad function whether you're an athlete striving for peak performance or on a rehabilitation path this episode guarantees to be an invaluable asset let's jump right in welcome back to the true sports physical therapy podcast back by popular demand we got dr race hauser who was a part of one of our one of our most popular episodes in the past talking about all things strengthening and conditioning as it pertains to ACL. Race, I'm really excited to talk to you about how the hell we wake up the quadriceps after an ACL surgery. So, welcome back to the pod, Race.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Yoni.
0: Um really uh, a pleasure. So, one of the things that I struggle with massively, um when rehabbing athletes coming out of an ACL surgery is how we wake up the quadriceps. And we've talked a lot about how, um, how the quad shuts down, maybe why it shuts down ways to wake it up after we get all of that motion. And oftentimes those things are happening concomitantly. I want to know race from your point of view, why does that quadriceps go to sleep after knee surgery?
1: So essentially we'll dive into AMI or what's commonly known as arthrogenic muscle inhibition, essentially like that quadriceps, it's still healthy muscle tissue, but now it becomes reflexively inhibited. Um, So some of the hallmark signs that we're going to see typically is going to be muscle weakness, muscle atrophy, and then essentially activation failure, which essentially is like the big thing that we tend to see is we can't contract the quad. Um, As to why it happens there, a whole host of factors that we think are essentially playing a role here. Um, one is going to be tissue damage. So essentially I think of that as we have the surgery, um, it's going to include things like the incision, the donor site for the graft. Um, typically we'll see greater uh, deficits and quad activation with either the patellar tendon graft or the quad tendon graft. Um, we got bone tunnels and then potentially other injuries or tissues that were involved in the surgery, whether it was like meniscus, um, LCL, MCL, et cetera, um, joint laxity. This I think is probably less relevant after the surgery, just because we're assuming that this is fixed now because of surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to have effusion, we're gonna have pain inflammation. And then I think the other big thing with uh, the new graft is going to be proprioception. So essentially the native ACL has a ton of proprioceptors, which essentially allows your body to understand like where your knee is in space. Um, So we have two things going on here. I think the big thing we always think of is since we don't have that proprioceptive input, now I'm getting less essentially sensory information, which is then going to dictate or essentially result in less motor output or essentially that quad not contracting. The other thing we have going on is the flip side of thing, where we have a sensory overload where essentially the we have excessive neural input from the increased nociceptive activity and joint mechanoreceptors. Um, so those are gonna be the two things going on in terms of why AMI is happening.
0: I, I love that you say it's commonly referred to as arthrogenic muscle inhibition, where uh, I commonly refer to it as your quad is asleep. Mm-hmm. So it, those are those are one and the same, right? So when we're trying to geek out or, or sound impressive, we're going to call it arthrogenic muscle inhibition or AMI. Otherwise, colloquially speaking, when we're talking to patients, your quads asleep and we're trying Mm -hmm. to wake it up. And and it's such a massive issue to getting athletes to do anything, to walk normally, to squat normally. That's why I go crazy when I see PTs jump right into, okay, let's work on your squat form when the, the quad is asleep. And you're thinking just by putting force through the limb that it's going to force the quad on i've never had success with that and that's why i think it's so important that we highlight the quad is asleep here's why it might be asleep from what i just heard from you it's we don't have proprioception in the knee yet um so the brain can't really control the muscle around it is that right
1: yep and then i think the other two big things are probably going to be the the effusion the swelling and then the pain as the other two big things
0: Right. So as PTs, we want to start attacking those factors, right? So one, we want to get swelling way under control. Um, we had Dr. Bassett on in the past and, and she talked about draining the knee almost immediately, um, as, as a point of just consistent, consistent care following ACL surgery. So I think that's worth thinking about. So is using compression, devices, um, cold compression, intermittent cold compression, um, from our buddies at Proventus that will help flush some of that fluid. Um, I've seen a lot of good work from Firefly. If you don't know who they are, check them out. Um, that's a way to just get consistent muscle, uh, recruitment to help flush the fluid, the pain, by the way, the pain that you mentioned or nocioception, as you call it, is one of the reasons I hate jumping to the, to the squat because you're loading up this patellar tendon that was just one third of it was just removed, you're going to increase those pain levels. You're going to decrease our proprioception um, and our muscle activation. So I think you're you're kind of um, cutting off your nose despite your face when you're doing that. But those are two big things that we have to attack, get the pain down, get the swelling down. Then we can start paying attention to muscle activation. So you touched on it briefly as to what the ACL does other than Mechanically stabilize the knee. Um, what other functions outside of of that stability? You said proprioception. Does the ACL do anything else in that knee that we should worry about?
1: I would say those are the two big things. I also say, like essentially, as a secondary consequence of the proprioceptive input, now we're getting more like active stability out of the knee via muscular contractions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think kind of all those kind of essentially play hand in hand with each other.
0: Okay, so. Those are the, I would say the two big roles of your, of your ACL. So it's proprioception and it's mechanical stability. This also is, is kind of a callback to a recent conversation I had with Vex where, um, he's an elite level hockey strength coach and everything he was talking about was, was truly proprioception and our brain's ability to understand where we are in space and to stabilize, um, and how important that is. How do you start integrating some of that proprioceptive training so early in ACL rehab? We're talking the first week or two.
1: I think big thing would be essentially trying to give them like references. Um, uh, Dr. Pat Davidson will commonly refer to things as like ground essentially as like, essentially just like your body is touching some sort of object and that is then giving you proprioceptive input. Mm-hmm. So it could be like, let's say I'm having them do uh, some sort of like, maybe we can't do a heel pop yet. And maybe I'm just working more of like a traditional quad set um, mm-hmm. as like our first like three, four minutes, just kind of getting that quad warmed up. Maybe I have them have their foot up against a wall. So now I'm getting contact with the wall. We know the foot has a ton of proprioceptors in it. Um, so maybe that's going to help give them a better idea of like where that knee is in space, um, and maybe help lead to better, uh, improved quad activation.
0: That that's a great nugget there. So you mentioned heel pop. I want you to define heel pop because we use that term so much in at True Sports, and we really just kind of made that up. Um, although it seems to be gaining traction in in the ACL rehab world, so I want you to describe heel pop, and then I want you to dig into the the real goal there, which is including proprioception by putting the foot on the wall before
1: we get into standing. So hit those two points for me. Um, so first thing with the heel pop, I feel like the most common thing that we'll typically see, like more we'll call like baby. PTs or new grads in terms of ACL is just like doing traditional quad sets, which essentially that's just referring to just like squeezing your quad essentially. Um, the big thing with the heel pop is we're trying to add in that hyperextension component to be able to control that actively because a lot of times we'll see people who will have, let's say they have five degrees of hyperextension passively, but they can't actually get there actively. Um, which we know in terms of like uh, risk for early onset OA, like that's going to play a big role in that. So being able to get access to controlling that actively, Um, By the way, not just
0: not just sorry to cut you off race, not just OA, um, but I'm also worried about excessive scar formation. Right. mm -hmm. And if if we can't lock that knee out to that five degrees of hyperextension in your example, you better believe that the the system is laying down scar tissue in that frozen knee or in that flex position. And we're dead there Mm because because now you're talking about. Uh, you're setting your your athlete or patient up for uh, a future scope right so we want it we want proper arthrokinematics as i always call it to allow for um a decreased risk of oa that joint needs to get to its closed pack position so that it can flush fluid out open back up bring in new fluid synovial fluid Um, that'll help with the health of the joint um, but also avoiding excessive scar tissue um, and a frozen knee um, is going to help with that okay so th- so that's your heel pop thanks for describing that now talk to me about the proprioception that you're beginning to to include
1: so we talked about like early um like immediate phase putting foot up against a wall and doing essentially like a quad set there i think other big kind of bang for your buck things would be like wedging a physio ball into like a corner or of the wall and essentially mm-hmm. doing like a closed chain tke that way um, gonna have foot in contact with the ball so they're gonna get again more proprioceptive input there And then we can adjust essentially the level of resistance based on how close they are to the ball or how far away they are from the ball. Um, Those are probably the two big ones I would end up using.
0: Okay. So in that instance, your patient's supine and they're doing a leg press into a ball that's on the wall. Is that what you're describing?
1: Essentially. Yeah. So they might, they might start in like 20 degrees of like knee flexion and then essentially just lock out the knee and try to be able to get into that terminal knee extension position. Uh, but now we just have a little bit of extra resistance with uh, essentially pneumatic pressure of the ball.
0: Okay. Um, and then, do you use a band behind the knee that you're like pulling up into what would be knee joint flexion, um, or are you just
1: letting them ride like that? I'll just let them ride with that because that ball essentially is going to provide that resistance for them. Um, I think from there, I'm probably going to end up going into a prone position and do a more of like a traditional like plank progression essentially. Um, as the, essentially gravity is going to cause a knee flexion moment. So they're going to have to use the quads to then keep that knee locked out. Um, we can progress that to like a single leg plank essentially. And then from there, get into a traditional like weight bearing progression.
0: Love that because what you're doing is you're accounting for the line of gravitational force, right? And so my issue with that early squat before they have the ability to control the knee, is you're forcing them to try to control all of their body weight against gravity in a squat position what you're describing now we're limiting um how much body weight they're controlling because of the line of gravitational pull when they're prone there's far less gravity obviously going through the knee joint so they got to be able to lock it out there before they get to close kinetic chain um totally standing right Mm -hmm. um so i love that and i haven't necessarily thought that all the way through but that's a great way to include that, um, in your, in your progression. So your baby PTs, which I would never call them. I would say PTs that are so eager to improve their clinical excellence. Um, those are, those are great interventions you can begin to use and the thought process behind them as to why you're using them. So good on you race. Thank, thank God you work at true sports. Those are, those are great ideas. Um, I noticed. You know you talked about ami and and why the quad goes to sleep you did not mention tourniquet time um, and the compression that transpires around the limb during surgery does that play a role for you do you think that really matters
1: um it might to an extent i haven't dug a ton into this um and all the like articles at least i've seen in terms of ami haven't mentioned anything in terms of tourniquet time Um, and that having a a factor playing a, a role in, uh, AMI, I'd be curious if you have a suspicion in terms of whether or not it plays a role.
0: Yeah, I have a, I have a massive suspicion. I think you're right. There's not a ton of literature in our world on that. I think this is the gap between PT and MD. The MDs know what standard tourniquet time is. I think the really good MDs and orthopods are totally conscientious about that and in trying it's almost like a race against the clock um how quickly they can put an acl in beautifully and limit that tourniquet time i I think it makes a ton of sense i had a great conversation with dr jamie drees um where we talked about and it was actually early one of our early pods we talked about standard um tourniquet time we talked about how he tries to limit that and i remember very clearly um, sending him a video of a patient post-op day one or two that had a beautiful heel pop and had a great quad set. And I said like, doc, why the hell do your ACLs? Why are they able to do that? And he said, um, in his classic fashion, well, why don't you put a tourniquet around your leg? pump it up to 300 pressure. Um, and let me know how your quad feels the next day, leave it on there for 30 minutes and let me know how your quad feels the next day. I bet you it's not going to feel as good as the other one, which is a great point. We, we just don't think about that. And so for the millions of orthopedists that are listening to this conversation, please start thinking about that to the tens of millions of PTs that are listening to this, start talking to your surgeon about that. It has to play a role. I, I bet you it does. So. If it's swelling, if it's pain, if it's tourniquet time that is shutting our quad down, you're beginning to wake it up, um, with the tricks that, that you just mentioned, um, any other tricks that you're thinking early, that's going to help decrease this arthrogenic muscle inhibition.
1: Um, so I'll typically use what's called like a open and exploit principle essentially. So essentially we're thinking with AMI, we're going to have atrophy of that quad muscle. So. I'm going to have essentially less motor neurons to be able to uh, recruit. Essentially, um,
0: let me ask you this though: is it is it at- it's not atrophy
1: yet, right? Um, that, th- that muscle hasn't shrunk. If we're immediate post-op, no. I think right. also depends on like when in res- or when in relationship to the injury is surgery and stuff. Because if we're waiting like that four week period, we might already start to see some uh, changes in terms of muscle volume. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's like Injury happens, they get surgery within like the next week because swelling and range of motion look pretty great. Like at that point, I'm not suspecting atrophy to be really implicated as much at that point. Okay. But yep. if it's something where they got hurt four weeks ago, um, we're struggling with swelling and range of motion to get back prior to surgery, I'm going to suspect that that's going to have a little bit larger of a, a role there. Yep, that um, makes sense. but essentially. Prior to uh, exercise, I'm going to use some sort of non-exercise intervention. Um, I'll commonly use ice in the clinic. Um, Sometimes i use tens as well. Uh, Essentially, if we ice for about 20 to 30 minutes prior to um, intervention, we're going to get about a 60-minute window for improved recruitment. Awesome. Um, And then with tens, same sort of thing, you'll probably get about a 20, 30-minute window. So if you combine both of them, um, essentially get the buck there. Um, that's essentially going to give us more access or access to a larger motor neuron pool, and then from there we'll employ some of our more traditional uh, methods and means in terms of like NMES um, to help recruit the quad, um, and essentially try and get that as strong as as tolerable in terms of contraction.
0: Okay, so you're putting ice on these patients for about 20 minutes prior to asking them to recruit their quad right? And and maybe you're putting tens on at the same time prior to asking them to recruit their quad. That sounds like outstanding home exercise prescription Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't because because I hate using my time in the clinic for stuff that they could be doing at home. So why is that working? Why does putting ice on a knee help with recruitment?
1: So the biggest thing it's probably gonna do is alter uh, sensory input, essentially, um, from both nociceptors and the thermoreceptors. Um, so reduce that nociceptor activity um, and essentially increase that motor neuron pool excitability. Um, in the clinic, I've done some just kind of like, I don't know, I'll call it like messing around per se, where like I'll get them on the 10 deck, maybe set them up at like 60 degrees of knee flexion. Essentially um, I'll have the app pulled up and everything. I'll have them kick as hard as they can um, up until like a three out of 10 pain. And let's say they get, 20 uh 20 pounds of force on the on the tin deck and then i'm like all right let's ice for a little bit maybe five minutes or so put them back on it and it's not uncommon to see like their force output double in that five to ten minute window of icing
0: it's unreal and and you think that's happening because why it's essentially numbing the knee and they're not feeling the pain that's going to shut down their quad
1: yeah and essentially like that heightened nociceptive activity that we kind of mentioned earlier. Um, Essentially, we're reducing that. So now we're getting a little bit better motor stimulation, much of that inhibiting stimulus.
0: That is fascinating. Any any other interventions that can show that amount of increased force?
1: Um, I would say like immediately, probably the only other thing that you'll probably be able to use will be NMES in the clinic to get that sort of like party trick sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, in terms of more like long term changes, um, essentially eccentric cross exercise, um, trying to use that crossover effect. So doing essentially heavy centric work on the non op side. um, And then also using BFR on the op side one to try to limit atrophy, maybe hopefully get a little bit improvements in hypertrophy, but then we'll get some of the uh, systemic hormonal effects from the BFR.
0: That's, that's awesome to know because that now you start thinking when you use the term party trick, this is when I would use interventions in a competition setting where I'm talking to um, an NFL athlete and we're talking about ways to ramp up force production and the ability to do that in competition. I'm frequently getting questions of how do we increase, um, our, our force output, how do we decrease the chances? Um, we have an injury in, in game, almost, these are great ways where you can teach the athlete, Hey, throw some ice on that knee immediately prior, mm-hmm. um, work the hell out of your contralateral limb immediately prior. We know that it's going to increase the force of your affected limb, um, and decrease the chances one, you injure and two, it's going to increase performance, right? This is when sports PTs become essential, they become performance PTs on the sideline as opposed to um, go try some quad sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's so different, right? Okay. So, so that's where you become um, essential to have on the sidelines. That's where it's helpful to be in a locker room, in a clubhouse, trying to get the most out of your athletes. How much do you see of AMI non-op? Is this a player in your patellar tendonitis? Is this a player in your quad tendonitis?
1: Um, there's been some studies and I, since the vast majority of research has been more dedicated towards ACL research. Um, there's been a handful of studies that I've looked at other conditions like OA at the knee, um, like essentially subacromial pain syndrome, at uh, the shoulder, um, and we do see some of these kind of AMI related features, um, that are implicated in some of those other pathologies. Um, This is my personal kind of bias in terms of let's say I see someone who's coming in for shoulder pain, and let's say I measure ER on the tin deck, and let's say their non-affected side is 20 pounds, and their affected side is let's say 12 pounds, and let's say in six weeks they're pain free, I'm thinking I probably didn't actually strengthen the muscle if they're now at 100% symmetry. I'm thinking I probably now have essentially like they're not getting that inhibition because of the pain and that's now the improvement that we see versus like a true strengthening effect.
0: Okay. So, so what happens
1: then in your rehab? Um, after they're essentially like pain-free, mm-hmm. um, essentially from there it's, uh, whatever they need to get back to doing, you know, is it overhead lifting? Is it being able to throw a 90 mile fastball? Um, essentially from there it's like, okay, this is what we've been doing. You haven't thrown a baseball in, let's say, two or three months. Now we need to start to progress the stressors to essentially approximate closer to those throwing stressors, and then just kind of gradually build that up.
0: Okay, so it st- starts to become more task specific. Yeah. Um. Once they're once they're out of pain, um. Once you get this, let's let's shoot back to our ACL case. They're able to recruit their quad beautifully. Um. You've gone from that plank position to a single leg plank, you've gotten them um, up and weight bearing. How are you including proprioceptive inputs in your early strengthening phases?
1: So I think big thing, I'll typically be a big fan of either one, reducing basis support contacts, maybe going like a, a bridge the gap sort of method, um, or I'll commonly employ some sort of thing where I want to keep the foot stable. Um, But now I want to try to be able to like alter center of mass by either like having them move the kettlebell from side to side um, or maybe see if they can do like a hip airplane where now they have to rotate uh, like their hip on a stable leg. I'll typically include stuff like that um, more so than traditional like unstable training. Um, But that's just kind of my, my bias in terms of how I end up going about it. Why why do you do that? Why do you Um, err towards that? So my biggest thought would be, and this will be kind of like relating it to like the sit sub essentially in terms of, uh, um, like doing all of the, the neuro testing based, like simply trying to determine, is it like visual feedback issue? Is it like more of a, uh, um, why am I blank vestibular system issue or proprioceptive issue? Um, my thought would be if we're on an unstable surface, let's say an Eric's pad, like I'm Mm -hmm. now diminishing proprioceptive input and now I'm having greater reliance on my other two systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So my thought would be, is there a way that we can alter essentially the other two systems and then essentially be able to then bias more proprioceptive feedback? So I think like maybe I uh, do some sort of like head nods or do some sort of like visual uh, occlusion sort of stimulus um, to be able to essentially try to bias or hone in more on the proprioceptive side of things.
0: Yeah, so... I love that because you did a really good job of highlighting when we talk about balance or control, there are really three players here, right? It's visual, it's vestibular, it's proprioceptive. And I think as a profession, we just jump to this air pad where we're only really attacking one of those three. You're talking about hitting those others, making sure you're hitting vestibular, making sure you're hitting visual. How do you play with an athlete's visual system? I think you said visual occlusion which is a really fancy way of saying, messing with what they're seeing.
1: Yeah, essentially you'll see some people use like uh, strobe glasses essentially where like they'll like flicker light on and off essentially more or less. Um, And so now they're not getting that similar sort of visual input. Um, I might also have them do some sort of thing where they have to like be able to like track something with their eyes because you'll notice that people who, since like if I'm trying to balance, I want to focus on one point, some sort of like horizontal probably, and if I start to essentially adjust visual input, like now I have to essentially rely more on other systems, whether it's it's vestibular or proprioceptive, to be able to maintain that sort of single-limb stance.
0: Um, that is, this is such a holistic approach to, to challenging an athlete. Um, too often, I think we get into a world of, we just got to get them stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And what you're highlighting here is we got to get them controlling that that limb in addition Mm -hmm. to, to strengthening and loading, right? So in your, um, session, how do you
1: split those up? So it might be like, let's say we've introduced some weight bearing stuff. So let's say maybe we're, I don't know, three or four weeks swelling, range of motion, looking pretty good. Pain's good. Um, they're able to heel pop, do straight leg raises. So it's like, all right, we've hit that. So I, I'll probably still utilize a little bit of NMES. Um, maybe start off with some like, leg extension ISOs, maybe overcoming ISOs to tolerance, get that quad warmed up a little bit. Um, And then from there, I might go through like a a locomotive series. Uh, Maybe it's like a single leg march, Um, start to get them a little bit more comfortable with like single leg stance time. And then from there, I can get into more of like a traditional single leg, I don't call it balance exercise, but motor control exercise, Um, working on be able to control like center of mass, um, or being able to do some sort of like dual task, um, uh, simply trying to be able to devote less cognitive resources to like maintaining single limb stance and more accomplishing the secondary task. Um, and then from there, we might get into more traditional kind of strength training means per se.
0: Okay. So it's, it's within one session, you're trying to fill all these buckets. Mm-hmm. You're, you're ramping it up um let's say with stim i would say that's a great example of your open intervention right because you're Mm -hmm. increasing your access to the and and increasing the motor neuron pool right and then you're moving towards your exploit side which is we're going to load them towards Mm -hmm. the end so it's one Mm -hmm. session where you're accomplishing all these things is there ever a case where you totally split it up where it's like you're going to spend um Monday doing all of your open interventions. You're you're going to be doing um, a ton of that stim. You're going to be doing a lot of the proprioception work and then Wednesday they're going to come in, they'll get warm on a bike and you load the F out of them?
1: Um, So I'm going to typically do what I'll consider essentially this is how I'll frame everything for most patients is essentially a concurrent training model where uh, essentially I'm going to hit a bunch of different qualities within one session and essentially how much I bias that's going to depend on them individually and where they're at um i would say if i'm going to pull more from like the motor learning side of the things um in terms of blocked versus randomized um so i i know blocked practice within session i'm going to have great improvement and probably that skill mm-hmm. um, but in terms of long-term retention i'm not going to have as good um so i'll typically do more of like a randomized model in terms of like with that concurring uh concurrent model um, just so I have better long-term retention. The other thing you have to balance too is essentially the motivational trade off. So if I'm having them perform a task and they are failing eight out of 10 times, like they're probably not gonna want to keep doing it. Um, so you're gonna have to have some sort of balance of blocked versus randomized just because blocked, I'll probably get a little bit higher success, a little bit higher motivation. Um, but also want some randomized in there, um, to keep them motivated. Um, and still have a little bit of failure and challenge them in terms of progression
0: okay i, I love that you're using motor learning principles I, th- I took that class in undergrad and i'm i, I probably haven't even thought about that um, since then which was about 20 years ago now so um, i think that's great that y- that you're looking for that massive motor learning and carryover because that that's what this is about right um, getting them to function a- as as at high of a level as possible um, so i think that's that's really powerful and i think it's a lens we don't often um look through uh, i think we we, we just don't I, I don't think enough about that and i think that's that's super valuable um can you think back like over over the thousands of acls that you've rehabbed of an instance where man you were just struggling to wake that quad up um and maybe something you were missing
1: um so i think I have one patient, uh, heck we were struggling for six months to be able to do a heel pop. Um, and some of it was, I think on the patient's end of things in terms of like discharging crutches too early. Um, like I mentioned, Hey, let's progress to one crutch. And then next thing I know she comes in the clinic with no crutches. I'm like, Hey, we talked about this. Um, she's also a business owner too. So she constantly is up on her feet, have to go places and have meetings and stuff. Um, and we had a heck of a time trying to get that swelling down for the longest time, Struggled with extension for the longest time. Um, I tried to hammer home and I probably didn't do a good enough job on my end in terms of like an education standpoint, um, of being like, Hey, we need to work on extension. Like I really need you to focus on this. Um, and it wasn't until the doctor ended up saying essentially, Hey, if we don't get extension back, like I'm going to manipulate you or scope you. that mm-hmm. then she's like, Oh shit. Like I better start really working on this. So made some improvements in extension. But just because of the amount of activity that she was doing, like swelling was still there. We weren't able to get a quiet knee in terms of pain and swelling. Um, And it took us probably, we probably got our first heel pop at probably four months. Wow. And then she lost it for a little bit. And then uh, I would say the past, she's probably like six months post-op now. At this point, we're probably able to consistently perform a heel pop. Like I'll just have her go in the back real quick, like, hey, heel pop good okay we'll head out to the gym and start doing stuff um but i think it highlights the importance of one like as a pt like making sure you're providing like good education in terms of like hey like if we don't give this quad back like your rehab timeline like pushes out drastically Mm -hmm. Um, and then two also making sure that like the patient is doing what they're doing on their end because I can only do so much in 45 minutes twice a week. Like Mm -hmm. ultimately it's going to be up to them as well in terms of what they're doing outside of PT, those other, however many hours are in the rest of the week.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a great point The the education that you provide your, your patient and the import and stress you put on, on how important the quad set is, how important the heel pop is. I oftentimes will tell the athlete, "I, I know this is not fabulously fascinating. Um, it's even really boring but the quicker you get this the quicker you get on the field it's it's that correlated because like you said you you get to month three four and you're still struggling with that heel pop but they've been able to do their Bulgarians they've been able to do their rdls they've been able to squat but if you don't have that end range stuff now you're playing catch-up, and no one wants to be in that position. The, the patient doesn't want to be. The PT doesn't want to be. Um, you got to stress to your athlete from day one how important these principles are. That's why we say any athlete inside of our practice should be able to be pulled aside and asked, hey, wh- where are you in your arc of rehab? And they should be able to tell you. "Like mm-hmm. I'm at month X, but what I'm working on is why. And the reason I'm working on why is because this is how it's going to translate to the field mm-hmm. or to my goal. Um, and that's all about education and how you communicate and talk to, to that patient. Um, so, so keep that front and, front of mind, uh, front mm-hmm. and center. Now your sessions sound amazingly scripted. So talking like more nuts and bolts, you, you treat a million patients a week. When do you prep these sessions?
1: I don't know this is going to sound bad on me i'll typically have a pretty broad like structure of what sort of things i want to hit what movement patterns i want to hit um what qualities i want to hit and then from there it's just essentially plug and play like i might have like all right maybe i want to preferably do like this exercise for this sort of quality and movement Um, but if for whatever reason like let's say i want to use the kaiser machine and do a split squat on there let's say it's taken like i can easily just lateralize to a different modality in terms of barbell or dumbbell and still get the same thing that I want. Um, I think that allows me more affordance for like adaptability and being able to modify things versus if I have like this very rigid and specific program laid out for the individual in the day and something goes awry, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, what do I do next? Yep. yep. Um, So I think that's given me like the like in terms of prep time, it saved me a ton because I don't feel like I have to spend a ton of time prepping. Mm -hmm. It's just okay. I want to hit X, Y and Z here are all the exercises that can fall in the sort of realm of what I want to hit. And then we just get after it.
0: Yeah. And even, even now I've been doing this for a long time. Even now I will keep like that loose framework on my phone. Mm -hmm. Um, Say I have a major league baseball player coming in. I know I want to work on um, loading the cuff. I know I want to work on trying to do that open chain, close chain. Here are all the options. I can go through what what is my bag of tricks for open chain what what is my bag of tricks for closed chain like you said maybe a machine is taken or there's a dumbbell missing or whatever well i have all these other exercises that i can go to and try to challenge them and then within that exercise maybe it's too easy for them okay uh let me grab another weight maybe it's too hard for them how do i scale that movement just having that rubric um gives you the flexibility to, what do you say? Lateralize? To lateralize yeah. your, your exercise intervention so that they're getting an awesome session. And what you have to do as a therapist is lock in and see, are they performing it exactly the way we want it? Are they flying through it? How do I make it harder? How do I make it easier? And then you can move. We have, as part of our um, True Sports interview process, when we bring PTs in very often they'll, they'll treat me as the patient. Um, and I will show them like, I'm not getting my heel pop. I'm not, I'm not getting my quad set. How are you going to adapt? What stop? No, no, no. Squeeze harder. No, no, no. Squeeze. Like that's not usually the answer. The athlete's trying to squeeze as hard as possible. What other interventions can you throw at them to to try to get them to your goal, to their goal? Um, it's also going to decrease the stress of the therapist. I mean, (laughs) looking at you, I don't know how many people are watching you on this pod, but they're definitely listening to you. You look insanely calm and relaxed. And I I think that's because of that rubric, that foundation, like I can adapt, I can adjust. I'm going to be fine with whatever comes in just because they can't hit their quad set. I got a million ways to try to coach them to do that. I think that's Mm -hmm. why you look so relaxed. Yeah. Is that, you think so? Okay. (laughs) That's what you think. Okay. Um, so that's really confidence. There you go. I like that. Um, talk to me about dosing. Um, how many reps, how many sets are you prescribing say of that early exercise recruitment intervention to decrease arthrogenic muscle inhibition?
1: So I get a lot of people or a lot of patients that will actually, uh, think I'm crazy or kind of like chuck a little bit when I say this, but like, let's say I see them, they're two days post-op and I see them for the initial eval. I will typically say I need at least a thousand reps per day for the heel pops. That's insane. Um, And when I look at it from like a motor learning perspective too, because like it's such a low intensity or stimulus, I'll call it exercise that like I can do a ton, a ton of reps and really not cause any sort of like overtraining or essentially anything like that. So I'll typically start there with that commonly I'm probably having them use some sort of strap assist to help them get into that hyperextension. Um, and then depending on how that looks within session and how that kind of progresses, we may go to like, they'll use the strap to get up, squeeze the quad, release the strap. Um, but thousand reps per day, at least. And then how long are they holding? Um, probably three to five seconds, somewhere okay. in there. Um, and then depending on how the quad looks at first session, I may hold off on providing straight leg raises maybe until like that second visit or maybe third. Um, but typically I'll commonly prescribe 250 straight leg raises and then I'm going to progress to 500. Wow. That's a a lot
0: of reps, dude. Um, how do you keep that out of their hip flexor?
1: Um, so my thought would be like, if we start at 250, we gradually build our way up to 350 or sorry, 500, that, that will help help or help with that. Um, I also I don't know how other people will have them do the straight leg raise. I will maybe have them go like up to uh at most, maybe like 45 degrees of like hip flexion essentially. Mm-hmm. Um just because I'm thinking in terms of um uh the moment arm in terms of gravity, like as that leg's gonna get higher, like the the line of pull is gonna be less and less. So I don't need them to get all the way to like 60 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um so I think if I have more time under tension in those like higher level or higher lever positions, like that's probably going to give me a better indication of quad. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then from like a timing standpoint, like typically I'll be like, Hey, if you can heal prop beforehand, get into that passive extension. That's thing number one to do. Once we've kind of opened that range, um, we'll backtrack a little bit when they're in that position, let's say for maybe 10, 20 minutes beforehand, like put on ice, put on the tens. If you have a, a home unit. Um, do that that way we get the extension we now open up the motor neuron pool a little bit and that's when we then get into the uh the thousand reps per day essentially um always tell them if it's not feasible or like timing wise it doesn't work like regardless just get your reps in but in a in an ideal situation if we can go passive range motion with uh, the ice and tens um and then get into the quad exercises that will be sort of our best progression there
0: and ideally, how many sets are you giving them to reach that almost unattainable rep count?
1: Um, I won't actually give them, a, a set or a prescribed set count. I just want them to hit a thousand reps. Um, so if we needed to break it down into, you have a 10 hour window, like I want you to get hundred in every hour, like we could do that, um, as an easier way to track things. Um, but my biggest thing is just like more trying to get a thousand reps in per day. Typically, I remember one of my first uh, post-op ACLs I had here. Um, she's a pretty tall, lengthy, uh, like high school basketball player, mm-hmm. and remember I told her day one on the evals, like, "Hey, thousand reps per day." Um, she came in the next session, maybe a couple of days later, maybe the next day actually, and was heel popping immediately. Wow. Um, and I know there's going to be some like nuance there in terms of. Like not everyone's going to be able to have that quick of a turnaround but generally speaking i will tend to see a much faster improvement in quadriceps recruitment with a much higher dosage of uh, heel pops versus those who have lower Um, i've seen some pts who will prescribe like 100 to 200 Um, and my like i said my thought is just it's such a low stimulus exercise that i can dose this at a much higher intense or much higher volume essentially
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's because you're thinking far more, uh, motor recruitment or muscle recruitment than you are about a a loading stimulus. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and and for those listening at home, play with that hip joint angle because Mm -hmm. you'll feel your quadricep work very differently when your butt is up against the wall. You're sitting, you're sitting on the floor how that quad works with a hip at 90 degrees when you're trying to do a straight leg raise then you will when supine and so playing with those angles i'll also really dig my fingers into superior like just above patella distal quad let's call it force them to try to focus on that like try to squeeze that portion of your quadriceps so you know the patella is locking down that's i feel like a hallmark of Patients being able to get that heel pop too often, they're pulling on their quadriceps, but they're not setting their patella down, and so that's when you're going to feel your hip flexor screaming mm-hmm. as opposed to focusing or trying to focus on distal quad. Um, when you tell them to set up their electric stim for um NMRI at home, where do you put those
1: pads? Uh, typically, I'll go like kind of super lateral thigh, and then I'll go kind of distal anteromedial thigh. Why do um, you do that? Um I'm trying to get the largest sort of coverage across the quadriceps as I can. And I think essentially anything that's going to be more proximally located and more distally located, I think we fine. Um, but I'm thinking in terms of like, uh, volume, if I go a little bit diagonally, I'm probably going to get a little bit larger of a recruitment area versus just pure, um, linearly essentially, or in a straight line.
0: Two leads, one lead. What are you doing?
1: Uh, I got two, le- well, one lead, two electrodes, um, I think they're like the two by four inches mm-hmm. um and then yeah just one on that distal aspect kind of intermedially and then one kind of more laterally there okay
0: any benefit to just smothering their entire quadricep in
1: pads with like the two lead or uh, two leads and like the four small ones four pads?
0: Or... yeah or even going four big ones and just covering their entire quadricep
1: um i haven't seen anything in terms of the four big ones per se i know they typically want the largest area covered in terms of like electrode size. Mm-hmm. Um, I know at least University of Delaware's protocol, I think is two by sixes. Okay. Um, but I haven't seen anything in terms of using the two by fours or two by sixes and going with four plaid placement. I think one, it just might be too large of a stim pad unless you went vertically with it to essentially cover yeah. um, like that area, essentially.
0: And then does there continue to be a benefit? to keeping this electric stim and embryo process through
1: your loading phases? Uh, research will tend to suggest that you should be using it probably up to like an 80%, uh, quad LSI. Um, which I mean, for some people might take, could be four months, could be six months. Um, so I mean, it kind of depends on the individual. I will, if we're kind of struggling with like. Maybe we're like at four month mark, and we're like at seventy percent symmetry, and like from there, like quad strength is kind of progressing slowly. At that point, I'm probably a little bit more inclined to start to reintroduce some of that again mm-hmm. with the NMES. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably use it more like isometrically first, or with some sort of isolated quad movement. Um, but there's been a handful of times where I've used it uh, with more like well, quote functional based exercises with like squats.
0: Okay, so you will start to continue to include that or or maybe even dust them off and bring it back in Mm -hmm. um to force that quadricep on um i think that makes a lot of sense i think that also bodes well for your chronic issues right your tendinopathies um you better believe that that quad's not being totally engaged and using them in a functional manner um you don't just have to use them with your quad sets or your straight leg raises Mm -hmm. right like put them on there and that that's why i love some of the um when, when you're able to use a trigger, like a therapist help trigger that can turn the stem on and off and you can put them in their ranges. It's also incredible. I'm doing this a lot with, um, post-op Achilles now where I'm putting it all over their gastroc, the stem and having them move through functional movements, even when it's not ankle dominant, even when it's in RDL, um, they should be able to use that quadricep or sorry, that, um, gastroc to prevent the forward force and to force plantar flexion, albeit isometrically, to pull them out of their RDL, um, I've seen a lot of benefit there. Um, so worth certainly worth thinking about. Okay. Race, you need to treat a billion patients at 10 a.m., right? So we're coming up to the end. I just want to conclude with our Eric Cressy lightning round because I think there's, man, so much more knowledge between those ears that I want to pull out. Ready? Ready. Here we go. Uh, who is the absolute best physical therapist currently putting out social media content?
1: Um, best physical therapist putting out. Don't repeat the question, media. Race. Just answer the question. <laughs> That's so hard. Um, I would say right now, um, uh, Zach Atwood has been putting out some good information um, in terms of ACL rehab. Um, I know, I think he was a former guy who uh, had an ACL surgery. Um, mm mm-hmm. Um, he's always put out fantastic information in terms of like, am I quad strength testing numbers? Um, so he's been a great resource for individuals who want to get more information in terms of ACL rehab.
0: Okay. So we got to check that guy out. Now, let me ask you this. If you tore your ACL, who's rehabbing your ACL? Don't say me. Don't say Tim stone. Who's rehabbing it?
1: Um, I'm probably going to go with my boy, uh, Joey Scambia down at IMG.
0: Okay. Joey Scambia. Well, we got to. Pull him up here to true sports. Yeah. Let me ask you this Is it possible to isolate the VMO?
1: <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> okay. That was so easy. Thank you for not repeating the question. And thank you for answering it directly. So it, it's nuts. I, I'm working with NFL athletes currently that are like, Yeah, I'm doing um step ups because, you know, that isolates my VMO. You think that is just total eyewash?
1: Yeah. Typically, I know from like the, I think maybe it was in the 70s or 80s, or whatever and that research came out was saying like the last 15 degrees was like primarily VMO. But I think some of the newer research suggests that it's just like quad activation in general and we can't isolate essentially the VMO. Um, so I'm not as concerned about that per se. Like I know it in terms of like muscle bulk or girth, it seems to be the most effective, but I think some of that might be in related or in relationship to um, AMI in terms of like which nerves are affected um so i think the big one that tends to be um affected is the medial articular nerve which innervates that anterior medial joint capsule Mm -hmm. so that would be my suspicion in terms of why it seems like we get a little bit more atrophy in that muscle compared to other muscles of the quad
0: okay but but you're attacking that just by loading up the quadriceps with everything we've spent the last hour talking about yeah okay that makes a lot of sense last but not least what's your best advice to a newer clinician trying to figure out how to manage their time. You are a guy that has kept up with remote strength training that has kept up with your own personal strength and conditioning that keeps up with a busy caseload, treating one patient every 45 minutes for 24 hours a day. What's your best advice as to how to manage it all?
1: Um, I'd say the biggest thing is one. I have so much like stuff going on outside of like just work itself that essentially I know I have to be pretty structured with my time in terms of all right, I have this set of time or like this kind of much time allotted to being able to work out. I know during the weekend I need to res- or, uh, devote X number of hours to be able to get these sort of other obligations done. Um, so I think having like a, a loose sort of structure in terms of how many hours you need to set aside for certain things that you want to get done in your uh, life outside of PT um, can be helpful you don't need to have like a strict schedule, like, all right, every morning I have to wake up at four to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but it's just more like, Hey, I need to devote four hours out of the week to do X, Y, and Z. I'll get it done as I have time. Um, I think that will probably lead to a little bit less burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably my biggest advice, I would say.
0: Well, that that's really good advice. And you've given a ton of it throughout this conversation. So, Thank you for your time, for your expertise, for your knowledge, um, for explaining to us how it is you do it all and keep it all straight. Um, I think there, there's great stuff there. Tell this audience how they can find Race Hauser and all the great content you're putting out.
1: Um, so big platform will be Instagram. You can find me at the underscore front squat underscore doc um, on Instagram. And then also uh, me, Joey and then two other resident residents, uh, Taylor and Rob, we all started kind of a uh, essentially a, a PT platform together called Rehab Renaissance. Um, so we are on Instagram there trying to put out some good quality information there. Um, so those would be the two biggest places there. Yeah,
0: and, and it really is. It's unbelievable content. It's a great knowledge base. It truly is a renaissance of rehab. So thank you so much for, for sharing it with all of us for all of us pts that are trying to get better thank you so much to the audience for listening and and for begging me to get race hauser back on he's a busy guy but he is awesome at time management so I appreciate you carving out some of that time um as always please let us know what you want to hear more of what you want to hear less of who you want us to bring on we got a list of some awesome guests coming up and thrilled to launch our acl Masterclass from table to field um so sign up for that you can find that on all of our true sports pt channels um thank you so much race thanks guys yep.
1: thank you yoni i appreciate it yeah man